The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome, my friends, to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 24th day of April, 2011. I'd like to recommend, as always, that listeners take a look into my homepage, CorbettReport.com, where you can find not only previous episodes of this podcast, but also articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to other independent alternative media outlets. On a programming note, I'd like to let you know that there will be no edition of Sunday Update released this Sunday because I am a little bit under the weather and completely physically incapable of staying up till 3 in the morning editing the podcast slash video as I normally do and then waking up a few hours later to go to work. So uh, I physically cannot do that this week and there will be no Sunday Update this week and that is not by way of trying to garner sympathy. It is simply an explanation for why there will be no Sunday Update. But having said that, there was a technical problem with last week's episode of the podcast, episode 182, Requiem for the Suicided Kenneth Trenadu. As many of you may have noticed when you originally downloaded the MP3 file or got it delivered through your iTunes or other podcatcher, you may have noticed that there was a problem with the file and you could not actually listen to the episode. There was just bits and pieces here and there. Well, that technical issue, unfortunately, I was not, I did not discover what was going on until I had already arrived at work the next day and thus was unable to fix it for 12 hours. So suffice it to say, the proper and complete episode was put up. uh, Basically, it would have been Sunday night, Monday morning for the North American listeners out there. And uh, that is available for download in case you did not get uh, to download that episode in its correct form. So please do so because it was, I assume, I think, quite a good episode and quite worth listening to. And finally, I would like to remind you that this is completely commercial-free, independent, alternative, listener-supported media. And in order to keep it that way, I would very much like to call on your support for some financial help to keep this podcast going and growing. And on that note, I would like to thank all of those who have put in their 2009 Video Archive DVD orders. And uh, please let me know if you have any problems receiving or playing your discs. I am burning them one by one as the orders come in on my trusty old Mac computer. So please, please, if you have any problems, don't hesitate to let me know through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. And I very much appreciate those people who have been supporting the website by ordering their copies of the DVD, and I hope that people who have not yet done so will take advantage of that. But I have had several people asking why the donation button was taken down from CorbettReport.com. Well, in the switchover from my Canadian PayPal account to my Japanese PayPal account, it turns out that Japanese PayPal, because of the laws of the Japanese government, etc., do not allow for a donation button. There is no way to donate to a Japanese PayPal account through a donate button. So instead, I have decided to set up something completely different as something of an experiment to see if this works and if this could be a funding mechanism through which I could actually start to make this site self-supporting. And that is a subscription button. I have added a subscribe button on the subscribe tab of CorbettReport.com. And of course, all of the media, all of the articles, interviews, videos, and podcast episodes are provided completely for free 
to CorbettReport.com listeners free of charge. There is no cost to you whatsoever. But if you would like to support the Corbett Report and to help donate to keep the Corbett Report going, well, you can now do so by subscribing to the Corbett Report, quote-unquote. All this is is a monthly donation, and I've set the rate at 100 Japanese yen, which is about one U.S. dollar a month. And I assume that's a fairly reasonable rate, considering the number of videos, articles, interviews, and uh, podcast episodes that are coming out each and every month from the Corbett Report. If you would like to support, please subscribe. One dollar per month will be taken from your PayPal account or your credit card or whatever uh, you use to sign up uh, to the subscribe with. It will be through PayPal.com. And basically that will be a recurring charge until such time as you choose to cancel that recurring charge, which of course you can do so at any time. It it guarantees you nothing. It gives you nothing in return other than the feel-good satisfaction of knowing that you are helping to support the Corbett Report. So on that note, I would strongly, strongly urge people to do so, to subscribe and to spend $1 a month to divert one cup of coffee a month towards the sustenance of real alternative media. So I I ask your assistance on that matter, and, and thank you once again for all your support. And without further ado, let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome, friends, to episode 183 of The Corbett Report, Five Lectures That Will Blow Your Mind. Now, that's a pretty tall order to live up to, but I trust that I won't have to take too much time explaining the premise of today's episode. Basically, we are going to play excerpts from five lectures that I think are very much worth listening to. And so the usual caveat on this podcast will hold true very much so in this case that I urge and exhort and plead with listeners to go and take the documentation links for today's episodes and to explore these lectures in their entirety and some of the background information that I'll be providing with them. But suffice it to say, there are some very, very interesting ideas to be explored here, so let's get into exploring them. And we're going to be starting today with one of those strange synchronicities that I've noted happened from time to time when producing a podcast like this. And I refer to a strange synchronicity that is occurring between this podcast and the Peace Revolution podcast at peacerevolution.org, where their 22nd episode, which was recently released, deals with the idea of the best enemies money can buy and starts with an interview with Anthony Sutton exploring the possibility, in fact, the documented historical fact, that the West and Wall Street, in fact, aided, abetted, and funded the rise of the Soviet Union and the Bolsheviks. And that's an extremely interesting interview and an extremely interesting episode of Peace Revolution, so I certainly hope that people will go and check out that episode. But without actually having even listened to that episode yet, before I had even had a chance to listen to it, I had already decided to play this epi- this excerpt from this Anthony Sutton lecture on today's episode, so we can get a, at least a sneak preview for those who haven't heard Anthony Sutton's interview uh, on the Peace Revolution podcast as to what types of information he's revealing. And we're going to be taking this from a lecture that he delivered shortly after the release of his book on Wall Street and FDR. But some background on who Anthony Sutton is. Well, he was a researcher who was born in 1925 and passed away on June 17, 2002. And he was something of a mainstream economics professor who went rogue, one might say. He was an economics professor at Cal State, uh, University of Los Angeles, and also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. And it was while he was at the Hoover Institute that he wrote 
Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development, a three-volume tome detailing in great detail the historical fact that the Soviet Union was supported from its very beginnings by major Wall Street and uh, American economic interests. Extremely interesting subject. Well, from that point, he continued to press the issue, and eventually, after he released a condensed version of his research, National Suicide, Military Aid to the Soviet Union, he was eventually outed from the Hoover Institute, who wanted nothing more to do with him, and his uncomfortable probing into the issue of how the Bolsheviks were propped up and placed into power by Wall Street. After that point, he went on uh, something alternative. He, he decided to pursue through his own means. He wrote for several books, including Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, and Wall Street and FDR looking into and probing those uncomfortable truths about how American autocrats and bureaucrats and technocrats and those in positions of financial power have actively supported, well, totalitarian regimes throughout the world for a long time, including the arch-nemeses of the 20th century, Hitler and Stalin. So extremely interesting. He also, of course, wrote about America's secret establishment and introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones, which is still probably the preeminent tone on the issue. And interestingly enough, and believe it or not, even Zbigniew Brzezinski name-checked Anthony Sutton's work in his book Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, where he wrote on page 348, quote, For impressive evidence of Western participation in the early phase of Soviet economic growth, see Anthony C. Sutton's Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development, 1917-1930, which argues that Soviet economic development for 1917-1930 was essentially dependent on Western technological aid, and that at least 95% of the industrial structure received that assistance, end quote. Again, this is a, not a peripheral figure at all. This is a serious researcher who did very deep and detailed historical research into very uncomfortable issues, which meant that, of course, he was outed from the mainstream establishments where he was working and had to scrape by the rest of his life by selling books on the subject. But at any rate, that is Anthony Sutton in a nutshell. So let's begin by listening to just an excerpt from his a very detailed and very interesting 1976 lecture on the subject of how the Soviets were supported and propped up by Western financial interests. So let's get to the point. How did the Soviet Union become a world power? Let's go back to the revolutions. The two revolutions in 1917. The first revolution in March of 1917 overthrew the Tsar and replaced the Tsar with a, what could, would well have been a constitutional government. It was, these were the first shaky steps taken in March 1917 towards a constitutional government in Russia. This constitutional government was overthrown by the Bolsheviks in November of 1917. There is major evidence, which I have published, of U.S. involvement. Not on the side of the formation of a constitutional government, but on the side of the Bolsheviks. Not the March Revolution, but the November Revolution. Now, I've not got the whole story. I've published what I have been able to unearth. And these are roughly the key points. In March 1917, at the time of the uh, First Revolution, Lenin was in Switzerland and Trotsky was in New York. They were the two major operators in the Bolshevik Revolution. Lenin returned to, uh, to Russia with the aid of the German High Command. I reasonably suspect that the Kaiser did not know. The highest German official who knew about this was Chancellor Bethmann Holweg, 
from the well-known perhaps in Germany, the Bethmann Holweg um, uh, banking family. Trotsky was in New York, a penniless immigrant apparently. He acquired $10,000 in gold. He acquired an American passport. He was put on a boat for Russia. The Canadian authorities pulled the boat into Halifax, Nova Scotia. They took off Trotsky and his party, locked them up as prisoners of war. There was immediate intervention from both London and Washington, and these documents are in the files. He was put back on the boat for Russia with apologies. Also on the boat were Lincoln Stephens, quite a well-known leftist in the United States, and Charles Crane of the Westinghouse Company, and Charles Crane was chairman of the Democratic Finance Committee at that time and a friend of Woodrow Wilson. And the book tells you what happened and how they met and talked on the boat. Also, in July 1917, a Colonel William Boyce Thompson, who was the first permanent director of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, formed a Red Cross mission to Russia. Now, Russia didn't want a Red Cross mission. And the Red Cross in Washington didn't want a mission going to Russia. But Thompson was a very influential gentleman. He financed it and organized it himself. The mission had nothing to do with either medicine or Red Cross. I've listed the members of the mission. Out of 30, only six were doctors. The rest were Wall Street lawyers and financiers. They were representatives from Chase Bank, National City Bank, and the rest of it. The mission was a political vehicle to give assistance to the Bolshevik Revolution in November. What was the assistance? Well, very briefly, Colonel Thompson himself said, and it was published in the Washington Post, which is an authoritative source at the time, that he gave one million dollars to the Bolsheviks to help their revolution. That's Colonel Thompson, not me. There was intervention by American International Corporation, which was another vehicle based on Wall Street, in Washington to forestall any possible assistance to the enemies of Bolshevism. Further, you can find in the British Foreign Office files the fact that Thompson and Lamont of the Morgans went to see Prime Minister Lloyd George in England and changed in one meeting British policy from being anti-Bolshevik to being pro-Bolshevik. This information, I would point out, comes from the British War Cabinet papers, Thompson's own papers, and the State Department files. The documents are quite genuine. Now, in early 1918, the Bolsheviks held only a very small part of Russia. They held, really, just Moscow and Petrograd. They were fighting both the Whites and the Greens. Now, the history books don't tell you about the Greens. They only tell you about the Reds and the Whites. There were 700,000 Greens. And the Greens were Bolsheviks who saw that Lenin and Trotsky had betrayed the revolution to capitalists, and this was pointed out in the Russian newspapers at the time, and the Greens, 700,000 strong, were fighting against the Bolsheviks with the Whites. But what happened is that the Wall Street mission and its allies in, in the United States gave the Bolsheviks enough breathing space to be able to occupy Russia. Another point that fits in here is Guy Richard's latest book um, on the uh, rescue of the Romanovs, in which he, I think, proves that the Tsar was not killed, that there was, this is a myth perpetuated by Britain and the United States in collusion with the Soviet Union, 
for reasons which he will point out. And so this high-level collusion between the Soviet Union, the United States, and other countries has gone on since 1917. Now, also according to the history books, at the time of the revolution and civil war in Russia, Russian industry was in ruins. This is nonsense. Russian industry was not destroyed except perhaps in Petrograd. It was idle. It was in what the Soviets call a state of technical preservation. What happened was that the middle class, the technicians and the managers, left Russia. They weren't Bolshevik. And the plants and the equipment were standing there idle. And the Bolshevik revolutionists had no means to get it into action. What happened was in the 1920s, foreign companies, mainly American or German, and the German companies were affiliated with major American corporations, mostly. When th these companies went into Russia and they gave technical assistance or they took the foreign concessions, some three or four hundred of them, and this got the Soviet Union off in uh, economic development. This, of course, I've covered in the very first book I put out back, back in 1968, the period from 1917 to 1930, how very prominent firms like Westinghouse, General Electric, Ford Motor Company, Standard Oil, these firms, through concessions and technical assistance agreements, enabled the idle Russian industry to get restarted under the Soviets. There are two names which should not be forgotten from the 1920s. Avril Harriman, who was operating the Georgian manganese concession, and Armand Hammer, whose father, of course, Julius Hammer, was executive secretary of the Communist Party USA. That is something the Los Angeles Times never prints, but uh, it's quite verifiable. Um, so the Soviet Union, in that first decade, was enabled to survive and recuperate with the assistance of German and American firms, I would point out, to keep the, the text straight, that the State Department was not at fault, as I see it. It's quite clear from the files, as, I've, uh, as I have read them, that State Department officials could look ahead. They saw the possibility of a war like Korea and Vietnam, where the Soviets would supply the other side. They looked ahead, and they say, no, uh, stay out of the Soviet Union. Let it, uh, let it find its own feet, and we should not help to build it up. By 1928, the Soviet Union, with Western assistance, had restored a 1913 output. And the Soviet planners began to think about the five-year plans. Maybe a few of you will, will remember that back in 1930 in the United States, there was a great publicity about the great experiment in the Soviet Union, pulling up by the bootstraps, a model for Roosevelt's New Deal to copy. How a socialist society could do all kinds of wonderful things a free enterprise society could not do. How free enterprise was outmoded. And who was saying this? Well, we find socialist Norman Thomas, and we find Roosevelt. But we also find, for example, a Gerard Swope, a president of General Electric Corporation. And we find Bernard Baruch. For those men that I call the corporate socialists, who run large corporations then and now, I submit, are betraying a free enterprise society. Now, the Soviets certainly acquired a massive capacity in the first and second five-year plans. That's during 
the late 1920s and the whole decade of the 1930s. What has not been said historically is how they acquired this massive capacity. Simple common sense would tell you that a backward country just does not start to build modern steel mills and automobile plants. That's just common sense. The first five-year plan was almost entirely built by foreign corporations. General Electric, Ford, DuPont, Coppers, Badger, Foster Wheeler, Universal Oil, Douglas Aircraft, Radio Corporation of America, Pratt & Whitney, Hercules Powder, United Engineering, McClintock & Marshall, McDonald Engineering, McKee Corporation, you name it. Amongst the large U.S. construction corporations, they were there in Russia between 1928 and the beginning of 1933. The plants they built in the first five-year plan were far larger in capacity and far more technically advanced than they were building elsewhere in the world. Anthony Sutton's works are still widely available online, and of course you can buy hard copies of, of his works as well. And at anthonysutton.com, you'll find a little bit more information about him and also a link to buy his seminal tome on Skull and Bones, America's Secret Establishment. Switching gears rather abruptly, as we will be wont to do in today's wide-ranging episode, we're going to switch to much more recent times and to a subject that is nonetheless very much a heart of what this podcast is about and something that we've been pondering since its inception, and that is namely the collapse, the mysterious collapse of Building 7, World Trade Center Building 7, on September 11th, 2001. Now, there has been much said and written about the collapse of this building over the past several years, and quite a few twists and turns in the story as NIST, the National Institute of Science and Technology that has been studying the collapse and putting out the official word on the three building collapses that day, as they've that story has changed, well, there has been a lot of different theories put forward and shot down and, and speculation and things going on, and... Finally, to put it all into perspective, we have an excellent lecture that was delivered by Kevin Ryan at the University of Hartford in Connecticut on March 26th of this year, and he gave a presentation entitled The Evolution of the Fire-Based Theory for Building 7, in which he goes over that changing story of the official story of what happened to Building 7. And it is quite an interesting one, and it is extremely interesting to see it all put into perspective like this. And I would put in the caveat that this lecture does contain a lot of detailed architectural uh, and uh, structural and engineering type language and terms and things that a lot of people like myself who are not uh, trained in this field might find a bit difficult to follow. But still, I think it is nonetheless incumbent on us to follow this discussion and to put some effort into learning what, what is really being deba debated here because it is not a trivial point by any means. Certainly, if there is any indication that there was an actual controlled demolition of Building 7 on September 11, 2001, that would automatically change very much the official narrative of what happened on that day. And as I'm sure my listeners know, the evidence is well-nigh overwhelming that that building did collapse due to something other than the fire-based thermal expansion that NIST finally concluded based on their computer models, the data of which they still hold secret for national security reasons. 
At any rate, this is an extremely interesting story, so I will let Kevin Ryan get into it, and we'll just listen to a short excerpt, but the entire 56-minute lecture is available, of course, on YouTube, and I would once again invite people to go to the link from the documentation section on CorbettReport.com to listen to it in its entirety. But right now, here's Kevin Ryan with an excerpt from his presentation on the evolution of the Firebase theory for Building 7. So let's review some of the deceptions we've seen in the NIST report for Building 7. NIST said that there were no Building 7 steel samples, but those samples were available. They were just left unexplained. NIST said that they took three years for their investigation, but they took at least five years. NIST said that there were seven hours fires in Building 7, but evidence suggests the fires were much shorter in duration. NIST said that there was no water to put out the fires, but Building 7 sprinklers were functional and water was available. NIST said that there were four-hour fires in the northeast floor of 12, northeast corner of floor 12, but only 20 minutes of combustibles were available in any given location. And we've seen that the duration from photos could not have been as, as long. NIST said there were no shear studs on the girder. This is contradicted by NIST's own interim report and by the building project manager, Salvarinus. NIST did not use photos of fire as model input. That's because the photos showed the fires were out. And NIST said the floor slab was not heated in their model, or NIST did not actually heat the floor slab in their model, and differential thermal expansion cannot be measured without heating both the beam and the slab. And other than the deceptions, here are the reasons why NIST's final theory is unscientific and false. NIST ignored previous findings on the Building 7 steel samples. No physical tests were done to confirm the mechanisms NIST proposed. Other physical tests have shown that NIST mechanisms are unrealistic. The fire theory is contradicted by the known fire resistance plan. The fires in Building 7 lasted only 20 minutes in a given location, while the steel components were rated for hours of fire resistance. NIST's final theory was based entirely on computer simulations that are not based on evidence. The fire initiation, fire spread, and fire loads were based on arbitrary assumptions. The case B assumption used was arbitrary and biased. NIST fire modeling contradicts the photographic evidence. The fires in the critical area were out long before collapse. NIST contradicted itself and known facts about shear studs on that critical girder. And the maximum thermal expansion possible could not have caused the girder to walk off its seat. Another indirect reason why this Building 7 investigation report is false is that building professionals around the world have not incorporated changes in building codes to prevent the devastating thermal expansion that NIST says take, took place. Existing bank buildings have not been retrofitted to pre prevent that occurrence either. Some of the tower re recommendations on the towers were considered for the internet by the International Building Code Committee, but not the one new recommendation from the World Trade Center 7 report. That new recommendation was that NIST rec recommends that building be explicitly evaluated to ensure the adequate performance of structural system under infrequent design fires with, with any active fire protection system rendered ineffective for thermal expansion. And again, there have been no reported changes to skyscrapers around the world, so be careful. 
We'd all like to see how NIST reached its conclusions in any case, but we are not allowed to see it. Structural engineers Ron Brookman uh, made a FOIA request to NIST in 2009 asking for calculations and analysis behind NIST's claim of girder walk-off. They wrote back, we are withholding 3,370 files. The NIST director determined that the release of these data might jeopardize public safety. <laughs> and it's obvious, but NIST conclusions cannot be confirmed due to this secrecy. In this final slide, I'll try to recap the seven points I wanted to convey. The destruction of Building 7 was unprecedented. The steel evidence was destroyed or unexplained. NIST's final theory followed years of failed hypotheses. NIST's final theory could not have been predicted. NIST's report is self-contradictory and contradicts other known facts. NIST's report is deceptive. And NIST's final theory for collapse initiation is unscientific and false. It's clear that NIST failed to explain why and how Building 7 collapsed. Today, there is no fire-based theory. It does, we don't have one. We need a new investigation. So thank you for listening. Well, I certainly hope that that presentation has whetted your appetite not only to listen to the rest of that presentation, but also to find out more about Kevin Ryan and his very detailed research. And in order to do so, I would invite you to go to a search engine, preferably one that does not record your details, such as Scroogel at Scroogel.org or Startpage.com in order to find out more about Kevin Ryan as your search term. But he is available at such sites as 911workinggroup.org, which is the 9-11 Working Group of Bloomington, of which he is a key member, and also 911blogger.com, to which he is a frequent contributor. And you'll also find in links to various interviews that he's done on such to diverse topics as who had actual access to the buildings, the World Trade Center buildings in the lead-up to 9-11, some very detailed reports, and he does go very much based on historical documentable facts, so I would highly recommend that people get into his research in order to find out more. But in another one of those strange little synchronicities, the person introducing Kevin Ryan in that lecture, if you go to the full-length presentation on YouTube, you'll see that it is William Pepper introducing Kevin Ryan in that presentation. William Pepper is a lawyer who I'm sure many of my listeners will be familiar with for his involvement with the assassination of Martin Luther King and the assassination of Robert Kennedy. So I think people will probably know something about his background, but reading from his biography on WilliamPepper.com, William Francis Pepper is a barrister in the United Kingdom and admitted to the bar in numerous jurisdictions in the United States of America. His primary work is international commercial law. He has represented governments in the Middle East, Africa, South America, and Asia. Today, Pepper represents Sirhan Sirhan, the gu gunman convicted in the assassination of Senator Robert F. Kennedy in June 1968. Bill Pepper was a friend of Martin Luther King in the last year of his life. Some years after King's death, Bill Pepper went on to represent James Earl Ray in his guilty plea and subsequent conviction. Pepper believes that Ray was framed by the federal government and that King was killed by a conspiracy that involved the FBI, the CIA, the military, the Memphis police, and organized crime figures from New Orleans and Memphis. He later represented James Earl Ray in a televised mock trial in, a t in an attempt to get Ray the trial he that he never had. End quote. 
Well, I will let you explore WilliamPepper.com and some of William Pepper's books. He is, of course, quite a famous speaker on the subject of MLK and also on the assassination of Robert Kennedy. So I would truly recommend that people listen uh, to more interviews and, and other links about him. But suffice it to say, he has some very interesting stories to tell about his time with people like Martin Luther King. And it is on that note that I'd like to take a, a short sample from a lecture that similarly is available on YouTube and comes from uh, an event by a social justice organization known as Picture the Homeless at picturethehomeless.org. And in this lecture, William Pepper goes into some degree of detail about his uh, personal relationship with Martin Luther King and also the, his uh, tireless efforts to get to the root of the assassination conspiracy of MLK. And that's a subject that we have, uh, to my knowledge, never touched upon on this podcast so far. So I would like to play a short excerpt from that lecture in which he gets into some of the details, some of the startling details that his investigation has covered, uh, uncovered, I should say, over the past several years, in fact, three decades, uh, that have really undermined the official idea that James Earl Ray was another lone nut. So I will play that clip without further ado, and let's listen to William Pepper on how the U.S. government assassinated MLK. And it also resulted in an, a long article in the Memphis Commercial Appeal by a guy called Steve Tompkins, who's an investigative reporter, who spent 18 months investigating the role of military intelligence infiltrating in the civil rights movement, going back to Dr. King's parents, back into the 20s, this was going forward. This had been going on forever, and Steve revealed that. That was all useful and interesting historically, but what I found most interesting was one little paragraph in that article that said, and there was in Memphis on the 4th of April an Alpha 184 unit, a... Uh, a unit that is normally a sniper unit. And no one has ever explained why they were there. So I went to see Steve, who at that point was working for the governor of Tennessee in Nashville. And um, he didn't want to hear about it. He said, look, Bill, I spent 18 months. These people are scum. They'll kill you as soon as look at you. I said, well, you know, Steve, we got a, I got a guy in prison who's probably innocent. Will you please help me? Finally, I just kept banging on his door and he agreed to help. And what he agreed to do was to go, take he didn't know anything about the case, but take questions from me to some of these snipers who were still alive and in um, particular case were living in Mexico. They had fled the country in early 70s because they thought there was a, a cleanup operation going on and they had to get out. So he, we did this for 18 months back and forth and back and forth. They would never meet with me because I'm raised a lawyer, but they said they would answer my questions. And they charged us $2,000 a meeting because they had to come from remote areas of Mexico. Well, they laid out their presence in Memphis, where they were, where the two guns were, laid out that Andrew Young was also a target. Each sniper had a spotter, but somehow, the last minute, they were under orders not... They, they, they were briefed at Camp Shelby at 4.30 in the morning, and they were told specifically, shown the photographs of Young and King, that these were their targets, these were enemies of the state, and they had to be eliminated. But they were told you're not to fire until you're given orders by your, your uh, captain. 
and the head of the team, Billy Ray Hodgson, was to give those orders. They were there in position. They described where Andy Young was, of course Martin on the balcony, and all of a sudden there was a shot. That shot came, and they didn't know where, but they heard it, and it hit Martin in the jaw, just above the jaw, of course, that was the fatal shot. It was fired from the brush area behind a rooming, uh, the rooming house that uh, sort of was opposite the, the uh, Lorraine Motel. And one of the one of the guys that they they just thought the other team had shot first, and they just got too anxious or something. But it was very unlike them because they were so highly trained and disciplined. These were special forces guys. But then the next order they received was to disengage, and they disengaged and they left, they left the area the same way they came in. What I learned after that was that there were two photographers on the roof of the fire station who filmed everything, still photographs, filmed everything. And they, one of them swept his camera, and the, the reason they were there, by the way, you say, well, why would they want to film? This is crazy. And no. The reason they were there was to film everyone and everything that was going on. So if there was anyone who might have seen something he or she shouldn't have seen, a person would have been identified. That's the purpose of that kind of photographic exercise. But one of the guys swept his camera f from the parking lot up into the brush area and actually caught the sniper lowering his rifle and said, it wasn't James Earl Ray. I didn't know who it was, but it definitely wasn't James Earl Ray. So, um, I wanted to get as much as I could from these guys, and I wanted to get the photographs. And so for another year and a half, we negotiated to try to get the damn photographs, because one of them had taken those photographs uh, to Costa Rica. He had, he had a, a separate set of prints there. So Steve was my negotiator on that as well, and one day he made a great mistake. He used his own name going into uh, uh, going into Florida, into Miami, and his name ticked off um, a surveillance operation. The FBI followed him to where he was meeting um, the photographer, and 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 they were meeting in a big open area. And as he sat with the photographer, the FBI agent stuck a long lens camera out of uh, the passenger side of their car. And the photographer saw it and thought he was being betrayed and being set up and then just split. And so that blew our chance of getting those photographs. But nevertheless, we got the information, because what they saw, because we had been able to talk to the photographers for whatever, whatever, that was, whatever that was worth. So going this route, we slowly picked apart the state's case in terms of the assassination. And it came to a head um, earlier, earlier than later. James had died in 1998. I had published a book in 1995 called Orders to Kill. That auction for that book was won by Harper Collins. Harper Collins, um, of course, as many of you know, was owned by uh, um, Rupert Murdoch. Um, Murdoch had the president of the company call me in London. I had moved my family to London uh, in 1981 as a result of 
all kinds of harassments and threats in the states following my involvement with the case. So I, th I think I could have little children, uh, a four-year-old son answering the phone, hearing threats against his father's life and seeing uh, uh, guys in duck blinds in the marsh area focusing their cameras on me whenever I left the house, things like that. So I, this is no way for kids to raise, so I, we, we moved to England and um, uh, to Cambridge. And um, so I was, I would, I was commuting, um, I was commuting uh, uh, con uh, continually uh, during the time I did most of this investigation. But the, the, um, the, the, the concept of, um, of more and more evidence uh, evolving after orders to kill, Murdoch said, I won't publish your book unless you eliminate the whole chapter on the military. You got to get rid of that because I've got an F I've got an FCC problem uh, taking over Fox. I've got IRS problems, some capital gains issues, and it goes to the bottom line of the News Corporation. So you've got to. I can't take on the government. You've got to forget about that military. You know it. They didn't do it. You know they were just standbys, backups. You, so what do you need them for? It's, you know, it was probably a mob contract that did it. And my response was they were so intimately involved that I couldn't leave out that whole thing. And as it turns out, of course, that was the case because the, the colonel, who was a, there was a colonel, John Downey, coordinated the whole operation from the uh, 902nd Military Intelligence Group in the bowels of the Pentagon, the only one that's in the Pentagon. And John Downey coordinated this he had the links to the mob. He was the, he he knew everything. Maybe the only person who knew all aspects of this was was uh, was Colonel Downey. So, I, how do you leave that out? Once again, William Pepper and his remarkable investigations into the MLK assassination, as well as the assassination of Robert Kennedy, can be found at WilliamPepper.com, and I would highly suggest people go there to find out more about those investigations. But for our fourth lecture today, we're going to be switching gears rather abruptly once again and taking a look at the realm of political philosophy. And we're going to listen to a lecture delivered in 1952 by none other than Isaiah Berlin. And as I'm sure some of my listeners are aware, Isaiah Berlin was a 20th century giant of uh, political philosophy and one of the regarded as one of the most important scholars of his generation. He was a Russian-born British citizen who lectured and uh, extensively on the idea of freedom, and he has many important things to say about that topic. And we will also in this podcast in the future, as this is something that I hope to get more and more into in future episodes about the philosophy of freedom. And I think it's an extremely interesting thing, at least for me personally, to get into. And I hope to expose more of my listeners to the debates about what freedom is and how it can be obtained. But when you go and start researching such bastions of truthiness as Wikipedia for information about Isaiah Berlin, you will, of course, encounter the description of him as a liberal scholar. And I think some people will necessarily, in a knee-jerk way, see that word liberal through the political prism that has been placed before our eyes, which skews the words, and not understand that liberalism is nothing to do with the phony left or right in our current political system, but is a political philosophy that stretches back and predates that 
phony left-right structure and has to do very much fundamentally with the idea of freedom as in liberation. So I, I would invite people to really take a look at Isaiah Berlin and some of his ideas. Not, I don't necessarily subscribe to them wholeheartedly and unreservedly, but I think he is very much someone that needs to be taken a look at when when people start to really examine philosophically the idea of freedom and what it means. So we'll begin doing that today in a very, very short excerpt from a very, very interesting lecture. And I, once again, wholeheartedly suggest people go and listen to this lecture in its entirety. And it's a lecture that he delivered in 1952 and is originally broadcast on the BBC's third program. And it was on the subject of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French, the famous French uh, Enlightenment thinker. And he talks about Rousseau and what Rousseau's concept of freedom meant. And, and it's an extremely interesting topic, and I don't want to over-talk it, so I'll just let you listen to it for yourself. Here is Isaiah Berlin on Freedom and Its Betrayal, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau says one thing and conveys another. He appears to be arguing along old-fashioned lines, but the vision which he projects before the reader is something totally unlike the kind of schema which he appears to borrow from his predecessors. Let us take, for example, such central concepts in his teaching as the notion of liberty, the notion of contract, the notion of nature. Liberty. For Rousseau, the whole idea of compromising liberty, of saying, well, now we can't have total liberty because that will lead to anarchy and chaos, we can't have complete authority because that will lead to the total crushing of individuals, despotism and tyranny. Therefore, we must draw the line somewhere between, arrange a kind of compromise. This is totally unacceptable. Liberty for him is an absolute value. He looks on liberty as if it were a kind of religious concept. For him, liberty is really identical with the human being himself. To say that a man is a man and to say that he is free are almost the same. What is a man for Rousseau? A man is somebody responsible for his acts, capable of doing good and evil, capable of following the path either of the right or of the wrong. If he is not free, this becomes meaningless. If a man is not free, if a man is not responsible for what he does, if a man doesn't do what he does because he wants to do it, because this is his personal human goal, because in this way he achieves something which he, and not somebody else, at this moment desires. If he doesn't do that, he's not a human being at all. He has no accountability. The whole notion of moral responsibility, which for Rousseau is the essence of man almost more than his reason, depends upon the fact that a man can choose, choose between alternatives, choose between them freely, be uncoerced. If a man is coerced, coerced by somebody else, by a tyrant, or even by material circumstances, then it is absurd to say that he chooses, and for Rousseau, he becomes a thing, a chattel, an object in nature, something from which no accountability can be expected. Tables and chairs, and even animals, cannot be regarded as doing right and wrong, for they know not what they do. And they do not know what they do, because they don't do, because they don't act. Action is choosing. Choosing implies selection between alternative goals. Someone who cannot choose between alternative goals because he is compelled, either because he is an object determined in nature, as the physicists have taught, simply a bundle of nerves and blood and bone, simply a collection of atoms, just as much under the sway of material laws as the inanimate objects of nature, either because of that, or alternatively, if he is determined not as things are determined in nature, 
but because he is bullied or coerced by a tyrant, because he is made the creature of somebody who plays upon his fears or his hopes, somebody who in some way manipulates him as one manipulates a puppet, someone like that is not capable of freedom, not capable of action, and is therefore not a human being. There's no saying, but what? A man in this condition, for Rousseau, a slave, might need to be happy. But happiness is not the goal. The goal is to live the right kind of life. And therefore, for Rousseau, the proposition that it may be that slaves are often happier than free men doesn't justify slavery. And for this reason, he rejects the utilitarianism of people like Helvetius. Let me quote. He says, slavery is against nature. He says that the unanimity of servitude is quite different from the unanimity of a genuine assembly of men. To renounce liberty, says Rousseau, is to renounce being a man, to surrender the rights of humanity and even its duties. Such a renunciation is not compatible with man's nature. Now, that means that for a man to lose his liberty is to cease to be a man. And that is why a man cannot sell himself into slavery. For once he becomes a slave, he is no longer a man and therefore has no rights, no duties, and a man cannot cancel out himself. He cannot commit an act, the consequence of which is that he can commit no more acts. It's exactly like moral suicide. And suicide is not a human activity. Death is not event, an event in life. Liberty, therefore, for Rousseau, is not something which can be adjusted or compromised. You aren't allowed to give away a little bit of it, or much of it. You aren't allowed to barter so much freedom for so much security, so much freedom for so much happiness. That is exactly like dying a little, dehumanizing yourself a little. And the thing which is very passionately held by Rousseau, one of the values upon which he really spent more eloquence than almost upon any other, is this notion of human integrity. The fact that the ultimate crime, the one sin not to be born, is dehumanization of man, degradation of man, exploitation of man. He spends a great deal of his passionate rhetoric on denouncing those who use other people for their own selfish purposes. Not because they make the people whom they use unhappy, as because in some way they dehumanize them. In some way they make them lose their human semblance. And that is, for him, the sin against the Holy Ghost. In short, freedom for Rousseau is an absolute value. And to say of a value that it is absolute is to say that one can't compromise it at all. Well, we will have to leave that lecture there as very interesting as it is because we, of course, do not have enough time to go into uh, too much more detail on that. But I would once again suggest that you go and listen to the entire lecture because I can almost guarantee you that however you think that lecture is going to go, it doesn't end up going the way you think it will go, and it ends up in a very different place. But uh, at, at any rate, I think this is a fascinating subject, and again, I hope it will become more and more a focus of our attentions here at the Corbett Report in coming podcast episodes. But we are running out of time today, so let's get straight into our fifth and final lecture. And I do stretch the definition of the word lecture somewhat in order to include this audio. It's really an audio of a speech, but it's a speech that is actually one of my favorite ever delivered. And this is an acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1950, delivered by none other than William Faulkner, the famed American novelist. 
Now, this is something of a departure from the usual subject matter of the Corbett Report, but I'll trust that the reason I am including it will become apparent as you listen to it and as you realize that there really is a fundamental reason why why I am doing the work I'm doing, and I assume many of the people in this alternative media genre are doing the work that they are doing, and what it really all means. So I will let, let leave that to be articulated by what I think is probably the most important writer in the history of the English language, but maybe that's just my own opinion. At any rate, I will let you listen to that, and he will have the final word in today's podcast. So that's it for me. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you very much for joining me once again and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. I feel that this award was not made to me as a man, but to my work. A life's work in the agony and sweat of the human spirit, not for glory and least of all for profit, but to create out of the materials of the human spirit something which did not exist before. So this award is only mine in trust. It will not be difficult to find a dedication for the money part of it commensurate with the purpose and significance of its origin. But I would like to do the same with the acclaimed too, by using this moment as a pinnacle from which I might be listened to by the young men and women already dedicated to the same anguish and travail, among whom is already that one who will someday stand here where I am standing. Our tragedy today is a general and universal physical fear, so long sustained by now that we can even bear it. There are no longer problems of the spirit. There is only the question, when will I be blown up? Because of this, the young man or woman writing today has forgotten the problems of the human heart in conflict with itself, which alone can make good writing because only that is worth writing about, worth the agony and the sweat. He must learn them again. He must teach himself that the basis of all things is to be afraid, and teaching himself that, forget it forever, leaving no room in his workshop for anything but the old verities and truths of the heart the old universal truth lacking which any story is ephemeral and doomed, love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. Until he does so, he labors under a curse. He writes not of love but of lust, of defeats in which nobody loses anything of value, of victories without hope and most of all without pity or compassion. His griefs grieve on no universal bones, leaving no scars. He writes not of the heart but of the glands. Until he relearns these things, he will write as though he stood among and watched the end of man. I decline to accept the end of man. It is easy enough to say that man is immortal simply because he will endure, that when the last ding-dong of doom has clanged and faded from the last worthless rock hanging tideless in the last red and dying evening, that even then there will still be one more sound, that of his puny, inexhaustible voice still talking. I refuse to accept this. I believe that man will not merely endure, he will prevail. He is immortal, not because he alone among creatures has an inexhaustible voice, but because he has a soul, a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. The poet's, the writer's duty is to write about these things. It is his privilege to help man endure by lifting his heart, by reminding him of the courage and honor and hope and pride and compassion and pity and sacrifice which have been the glory of his past. The poet's voice need not merely be the record of man. It can be one of the props, the pillars, to help him endure and prevail.